the, the nature of exile actually makes it so hard for you to form a collective group that can fight a certain narrative. But at the same time, I mean, once things calm down, it, there might be potential to regroup. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Sima Ghadar and Lily Hindi to talk about Syrian exiles and their feelings about their homeland. Hi, this is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to episode six of the TCF World podcast. I'm joined here in Beirut by Sima Ghadar, policy associate at the Century Foundation. Hi, this is Sima. And from New York by ultra-modern satellite hookup, Lily Hindi, also a policy associate at the Century Foundation. Thanks for having me, Thanasi. We're talking today about a paper you have written, uh, which is a really excellent uh, piece of of uh, ethnographic research you put together uh, based on several months of interviews of exiled Syrians talking about their views of identity and nationality. Tell us a little bit, um, before we get into the, the, the details of what you learned in these conversations, what was it that made you uh, interested in asking about national identity among diaspora Syrians? Yeah, I lived in Damascus for three months in 2008 studying Arabic, and um, my experience there left a big impression on me. I met some really wonderful people, and I got a small taste of the cult of personality that was there around Assad. Um, And when my Arabic teacher fled to Switzerland with her family in 2013, and um, hundreds of thousands of others started fleeing the country, I started thinking about this question of national identity among exiles, among people who had spent their whole lives under the Assad regime with such a strong enforced sense of what it means to be Syrian, and I wondered how that would change after living abroad for so many years. Um, What would happen to their sense of belonging to that country? And Seema, you had some, uh, some additional motives and interests of your own when it came to this project, right? Um, yes, I mean, in the, usually in the literature you read a lot before 2011 about how is it that, about propaganda and how is it that national identity was constructed in Syria. And rarely do you read books about how is it that people um, had opposed that form of discourse or that narrative, and usually they do it in secret. And I think after 2011 in Lebanon, after I had spoken to so many of my Syrian friends around here, you, they got to speak a lot more openly about how they feel towards the regime, where they um, pro or against, and it got me to thinking now that all of these, um, all of these challenging discourses to that narrative are now out in the open, and a lot of people would say that after 2011 there was like a wall of fear that came down. What had happened to these to these sort of discourses throughout a span of six years? Like, what does war? Um, not only uprising, but what does war do to these kinds of um, debates? Um, what does war, what, and also what does displacement do to, to people's understanding of what it means to be Syrian, or what, when they say that they feel like they belong to the Syrian yeah. nation, what do they even have in their own mind when they say the Syrian nation? Yeah, I mean, in terms of exile, or in terms of displacement, or refuge, um, most recently when you talk about return, so everybody says, I want to return, I want to return, and then that's that's what got me thinking. I'm like, what is it that you're returning to? 
So, so tell me, uh, uh, Lily, what uh, what you actually set out to do uh, uh, as you as you research this project. What was your what was your method? What was your approach? Well, I started to read a lot of the academic research on nationalism in Syria. Uh, there's a scholar named Lisa Wadeen who's written a lot about Syria under Hafez and Bashar al-Assad. And I read Syrian authors, um, you know, what I could get my hands on. I read The Silence and the Roar, um, the book by Samar Yazbek. And then I decided I wanted to interview Syrian exiles directly, the people who were living outside of the country, to get their viewpoints. And when I got the chance to do so with Sima in Beirut this summer, I realized it was really difficult to come up with questions about this topic of nationalism because it is sort of intangible and vague. Asking someone what does it mean to be a Syrian is very difficult. We got a lot of perplexed looks when we asked that question of people, and we also had a couple of interviewees misunderstand and think that we were talking about the identity card and not identity in itself, because it's such a, a large, you know, vague topic. And so this is a kind of lengthy narrative interview that, that you did, and, uh, you know, it's appropriate that you, that you invoke Lisa Wadeen and her work in Ambiguities of Domination, because a lot of what she was doing was just explaining how people think and get manipulated and, and also are, are sort of willing participants in myth-making and, and participation in a highly mobilized dictatorship like, uh, like Assad's uh, Syria, both, I mean, the, the fathers and, and the sons' uh, Syria. And uh, when the two of you started doing your, your research this summer, you're working in a, con in a context where Syria has just undergone the, the most contested period in its, in its modern history since the, the, the founding of the Assad dynasty, um, and maybe even the most open uh, period of contestation about what it means to be Syrian since the early post-colonial period. Uh, so you're talking to people who, for the first time, many of them for the first time in their lives, are able to openly talk about sectarianism or identity or, or, or feelings or freedom or aspiration or religion or any number of things that even in Lebanon right next door people have been able to openly talk about for decades. Tell us a little bit about what those encounters were like uh, and what sort of uh, surprising things you heard from the people you were interviewing? Well, I think the most interesting thing is when we asked um, our interviewees about how is it that they view the uprisings of 2011, where it was very challenging to even know what it is that we should call it as interviewers. And everybody would usually say, what revolution? Because everybody calls it something different. Let's listen to this audio clip of Tarek Huluki talking about his uh, feelings about the uprising. Can I ask you about, <clears throat> about the protests and the, the revolution? Were you involved Which revolution? in revolution? Uh, okay. <laughs> Who, everyone calls it something different. Tell me what you, what it's do a you chaos. call it. It's a yeah. chaos what happened. It's like okay. a nightmare for me. I just woke up hearing that people getting killed and... Uh, nobody even asked me, what's your opinion, you know? It's like something beyond me. And this is when I realized that it's not a revolution. Like, because if it's something, if it's a revolutionary move, it should come from the people who can speak. So I was, I couldn't speak. And I can't speak until today. The only thing I do, I just play music. That's my, if I want to call it revolution. That's a real revolution for me. But what happened there, it's a 
it's a bunch of people just fighting for stuff that doesn't belong to me. Like, I don't want oil. Like, that's not our target. Yeah, exactly. It's not like this because everything's hap happened like, like he said, it's suddenly we don't know what's happened. Why? Yeah, we just why? woke up, started yeah, to see people why? being like, even departed, like, uh, like divided. Yeah, I'm with you're against, I'm black, you're white. And I started to see this yeah. in front of me, and I was like, before that, it was not happening. Seema, what do you what do you make of uh, of Dadek's, uh thoughts? Several of our interviewees actually said that that opening up and that opening up of the discussion about Syrian identity um, was actually a burden to them. It was um, at some point complacency, as Wadeen describes it in her book. Sometimes that's a decision that a lot of people take where being complacent is a lot more comfortable than having all of these different communities open up and have their own views about how Syria should be. And even those that had lost hope about what 2011 had represented to them, if it had represented something very positive um, and life-changing, today some of them would say, I wish like the Pandora's box hadn't opened so that... I wouldn't have known how really complex this could get. The thing that's most striking uh, to me about this report is the the variety of answers you got from the people you talked to. You, you, you spent a lot of time with them. Uh, they came from different class backgrounds um, and uh, uh, different experiences of, of post-uprising Syria. Let's hear now uh, from uh, uh, Lubna Mri. I'm sure many people will agree with me that the first demonstration, you go and you, can, you cannot talk. You, you can't you can chat, you just cry. And this is what happened to me and happened to many of my friends. Like, it's something very overwhelming. Like, you grow up believing that those things don't exist. You're not even, again, you're not even allowed to think about, like, standing up against the government. And then this, this thing happened in front of you and you take a part of it. It's like people started to realize that, no, no, nothing is nothing is impossible. Like you can do anything, and you go to the demonstration and you get shot at, and you go next day and the next day knowing that you won't probably be alive, you know, and you just you just go. Lily, you said this was uh, uh, this was an interview that made a particular Im impression on you. Uh, why was that? What Lubna said there was something that we heard from a number of people, not only the sense of pure joy they experienced by joining in with the protests, but that after growing up thinking that there was no other way to live, there was no way to challenge the status quo, there was no way to talk about your subnational identity, whether religious or sectarian or anti-Assad, um, you weren't allowed to speak about those things. A number of people said that the moment that they felt the most Syrian was when they were actually able to start talking about those things freely. They told us that before the revolution, it wasn't that people didn't talk about those things, but they only spoke about them behind closed doors with their friends and family. And uh, Mustafa, who was a student at Aleppo University when the uprisings started, said that even his closest friends, he didn't know what their political views were. Um, Mustafa and a lot of the other interviewees spoke about the fact that there were always members of the security services sort of lurking in their social circles uh, or on the online forums, on the blogs, to rat out anyone that said anything that didn't go along with the regime's narrative. So this is one of the things that's really striking in, in Syria as well as in Iraq uh, after 2003. There were so many 
taboo topics that were so aggressively and violently policed by the state uh, that in some cases people didn't even know what they thought because they had so carefully censored themselves uh, because you couldn't you couldn't trust anybody. I, I, I saw this this process unfold in different ways, of course, but in, after 2003 in in Iraq and then in a much different way in 2011 in Syria, where people were suddenly not only free to talk, uh, but they were free to, to figure things out and to question things that, that maybe they had already always been questioning privately, but there wasn't any reason in, in Hafez or Bashar's Syria to reassess your, your feelings about national identity when uh, to do so would either land you in frustration or maybe in prison. So uh, when, you, when you were talking to these people now, five, six years uh, after the uprising, how did they seem to view this history where they had this unprecedented opening, but then where that opening didn't actually lead to freedom or change or any of the sort of political payoffs that many of them hoped for uh, when they first rose up against the regime? I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it uh, it reminded them of the opening that had happened in the early 2000s, which uh, they call the Damascus Spring themselves. And a lot of the activists that we had interviewed um, would draw this comparison between what happened after the Damascus Spring. So instead of having uh, this openness on the streets, like it ha- what happened in 2011, and of course in the media and whatnot, where you had this virtual democratic space, as they call it. Um, and then there was the government crackdown. And a lot of them say that this was a trick played by the regime to see how much the op- how much there is um, what they call the liberal democratic opposition. I mean, that's what the activists had said. And and then they they said after the Damascus Spring that it was we were too hopeful to think that change was going to happen. And they had given up at that time. And a lot of them had planned that they would just finish their university degrees and travel abroad. And then 2011 happened, and now they describe it in the same way as to think, how foolish of me. And that's like one of the things that Mazin, a journalist, said, like, fool me twice, your fault. <laughs> if fool me twice, it's your fault. And, and I think... Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me, we can't get fooled again. <laughs> yes, that's we, it. We, we traffic in policy <laughs> analysis here, not in aphorisms. <laughs> anyway, but I mean, so yes, um, so after 2011, five years into after 2011, he said um, that he was foolish enough to think that change was going to happen now again. Let's hear now uh, this quote from Mustafa. <laughs> Today, there are many Syrians. They're very different, and in some instances, conflictive. There's not one Syria. There's islands. The country is at a level where identity is very fragmented, even before you even speak of the fragmentation on the ground. Every group in Syria is now forming their own Syria. The Islamists are forming the Islamic Syria. Surya al-Assad already has Assad Syria, and now the Kurds are thinking of a federal Syria. There are so many forms of this. I think that today, this is very problematic. We have the conflict that exists. One is of abandonment, abandoning everything. People who have participated in the movement at some point are now in Europe. There is an abandoning of identity. 
The nation was close to their hearts, but now it's very futile to be protected of the nation or one's identity. Mustafa speaks quite eloquently about uh, his sense of multiple multiple identities, multiple views of Syria, and he, and he seems quite attuned to the question of what does uh, the nation mean. How does uh, Mustafa help us understand this question of what is Syria now to, to the millions of Syrians who, who live on in exile with thwarted aspirations? Well, understandably, almost everyone that we spoke to seemed pretty exhausted and worn down, and they weren't really talking with their fellow exiles about how to make a change back home. Um, people said that everyone's just operating in survival mode at this point. So I think that's part of what Mustafa was referring to when he said that there's uh, kind of islands in Syria, that there are a lot of Syrians living in different parts of the world and just living their lives without keeping their attention focused on Syria. And a few people said they don't even like to read the news about, about the country anymore. Um, there are also islands inside of the country because Assad controls the majority of the populated areas, but there are rebel-held areas, there's the Kurdish area. So the fragmented diaspora that we found kind of mirrors what's happening inside of the country. Well, and, and, and that's, I mean, that's a sad image, but it's also uh, one that contains some interesting potential because uh, different islands uh, uh, connote sort of people fragmented in isolation and un unable to really achieve uh, political goals, but it also suggests uh, a lot of potential for development. I mean, you know, the evolutionarily, all kinds of amazing species evolve uh, in islands. Um, and, and, the, and the idea being that, like, maybe inside Syria, it's now impossible once again, at least under Assad-controlled Syria, to talk about uh, other forms of identity or belonging. Uh, but now that there's so many uh, millions, five million uh, maybe six million displaced Syrians now uh, who are free to talk about their their competing vision for Syria that actually for the first time in, in 30 or 40 years will have, you know, almost a plurality of Syrians free to weave narratives independent of the narrative constructed by the Assads. Um, I mean, with regards to Mustafa's quote as well, um, he says that he says that there's a sense of abandonment um, because the the nature of exile actually makes it so hard for you to form a collective group that can fight a certain narrative. But at the same time, I mean, Mustafa works for an NGO in Lebanon, and he himself had felt the the potential, and it's a Syrian NGO. Um, and he said, I felt the potential for change when I had met my other fellow Syrians during my work in Lebanon, um, where he got to meet, meet Syrians from different places that he would have never have met in Syria. Um, and he said, we shared very similar political opinions that were not opinions that weren't afraid of being different or having a debate about something, but at least having that open space itself was what mattered to most of these people. Um, and he said it is in these tiny spaces that once things calm down, it, there might be potential to regroup in a way. Um, so he says there's abandonment, but there, he, he still hangs on to that kind of hope um, that he will go back and, and those ideas will matter and those experiences will matter. And it's, uh, I mean, a, a lot of what you've assembled in this report and in these, uh, in these recordings is a conversation that was once literally impossible to have. 
Uh, and, it, and it comes in a regional context where next door in Iraq, for all the other awful things that have happened since the American invasion in 2003, there has been a quite open process for 14 years now of reinventing, uh, relitigating questions of belonging, things like sectarianism or ethnic identity that were swept under the carpet forcibly by the regime at various times are now openly discussed. People are allowed to identify as Turkmen's or Kurds or Shia or Sunni or, or whatever they want uh, and, and sort of fight it out. And even in the Syrian diaspora, you have an echo of that process. And it comes on a spectrum where, you know, on the other end, you have places like Egypt, where after a brief period of political openness, there's, there's very little political conversation, even in the diaspora, even among the displaced activists and politicians. Uh, and, the, and the picture you draw here of Syria's exile community uh, or diaspora is a little more um, hopeful in the sense that this process hasn't been, hasn't been shelved. Uh, so any, any last words about uh, the research or this, uh, this fine report? What is very interesting about this report, I think, perhaps it might not seem a very pressing idea, seeing as most debates are about reconstruction, uh, physical and economic reconstruction, seeing as um, with the refugee crisis and all. But what really this debate should show is that um, everybody that is considering and finding it ridiculously difficult to actually imagine what kind of system of governance can take place in a place like Syria today, where everything is out in the open, animosities, difference, um, identities, um, similar to what had happened in Lebanon, um, do you go for a power-sharing system, a sectarian system? I mean, putting forth how is it that these ideas talk back to one another, even if they disagree on so many points, including what to call 2011 itself, is the kind of debate that should be happening to consider what kind of system of governments should take place. You shouldn't say, let's not talk about this because this will drive us towards more and more difference, but rather lay all of these ideas down on the table and say, actually, no, let's contest them. Um, and that's a lot of what our interviewees, perhaps not all of them, of course, um, were saying, that it's okay to have some form of political contestation that isn't necessarily looked upon in a negative manner. Um, Just to add to what Seema said, I'm thinking of our interview with Bissan, who's a Palestinian-Syrian. Um, she grew up in Syria. Her grandfather fled there years ago. And she talked about how her Palestinian identity has been strengthened because there's a sense of something to fight for, to, you know, to fight for her homeland of Palestine. And she suggested that uh, that may be happening with Syrians now, too, that their complacency has been shaken and they have something to fight for, which is, which is their country. So um, also the title of our report, uh, Nation in Pieces, comes from something that Mustafa said. He said that Syrians now are similar to Palestinians after 1948, that they're a nation in pieces. Um, so in that sense, maybe all of this upheaval, once it settles, will lead to a stronger national identity, uh, or at least a more contested one. Uh, well, Lily, uh, uh, Seema, it's really, it's really great to talk to you, and uh, thanks for sharing these, these voices and uh, insights from uh, the displaced Syrians you spoke to, which uh, I think are real harbinger of, of the future uh, and the kinds of debates that are going to have to take place uh, as a precondition for any kind of meaningful reconstitution of, of uh, Syrian identity. 
TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does and to read Lily and Seema's report, visit tcf.org.